Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Kaliole Colonna, and this is Nashville. This week, the show's been focusing on the theme. If you've been listening, you've probably guessed it. We're talking about guns. We kicked off the week with a profile conversation with Melissa Alexander, a Covenant mom, and we talked about her experience pushing for gun safety laws. We then spoke with Dr. Jonathan Metzel of Vanderbilt about his new book, What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. We also spoke with WPLN's Paige Flager about her reporting on gun dispossession laws and the lack of procedural checks. We also invited firearms and safety instructors to talk about how they teach about safe gun ownership. While this week doesn't cover all of the finer points about guns and gun safety, it's way too much to discuss in one week. We wanted to get the conversation started so you, our listeners, can engage in this issue that affects us all. Later this hour, we're opening up the phone line so we can hear from you. We'll have State Representative Caleb Hemmer and State Senator Jeff Yarbrough here in studio to talk with you about actions and steps the state can take to strengthen our gun safety laws. Gun violence is something that concerns all of us. All over the years, different generations of Americans have varying experiences in dealing with gun violence. Here's an opinion piece from producer Elizabeth Burton and myself as we share our personal reactions to mass shootings and gun violence. And a warning for listeners, in the next clip, you will hear reports of gun violence, including the sound of gunshots. We've lost the war on guns. Personally, I knew it was over after Sandy Hook. We had a chance to pick guns or kindergartners, and we went with guns. Guns are the number one killer of children in the United States of America. The number one killer. More than car accidents, more than cancer. Over the last two decades, more school-age children have died from guns than on-duty police officers and active-duty military combined. Guns and mass shootings. Is it as American as apple pie? While mass shootings and gun violence is not solely an American issue, it sure feels like we have set the standard for this type of tragic event. One tragedy is a tragedy too many. In the course of my life, there's been tears, trauma, and concern over mass shootings in our country. So here's a brief personal history of mass shootings from a middle-aged person's perspective and a young person's perspective. I remember the first time I heard about a mass shooting. It was the San Ysidro's McDonald's massacre that happened on July 17, 1984. I was 10. The thought of someone shooting dozens of people was foreign to myself and friends. But what was most baffling was that someone shot up a McDonald's, a place where I and my peers, we associated that place with happiness and glee. Going to McDonald's after a Little League baseball game became a much different experience. These images are more of war than of a small fast food restaurant in San Ysidro. Witnesses inside said he fired wildly into the unsuspecting crowd gathered for a quick evening meal. Later that summer, I had thoughts of potential gloom. 
and it rested in me as my team celebrated taking home the championship trophy. Parents had very little words to help console their children. How could they? This particular act of violence was new to them as well. I was 10. I remember. Police hearing the calls coming across the radio were confused, not sure how to approach such a dangerous situation. It was all happening so fast. It all happened in about an hour. No one can explain why. Why anyone would take so many innocent lives. The first public shooting that I remember was the shooting of then U.S. Representative Gabrielle Giffords in 2011. I saw the news while I was at school, and it was really scary to realize that something like that could happen to a public official. And a year later, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting happened. I was only in seventh grade. When little children not much younger than I was, and the exact same age as my little sister, were murdered in cold blood. And when you add to that that my mom was an elementary school teacher at that time, it caused a lot of stress for my whole family. And it was the first time that I ever saw my dad cry. The Sandy Hook School, and it is turning out to be worse than anyone could have imagined. On that day, I was on the phone. My younger sister was in labor with her second child. When the call came to announce my niece to the world, I cried tears of pain and tears of joy. Joy because I had a beautiful new niece. Pain because these kids, little kids, were violently taken from the world. A few years later, on February 14th, 2018, I was stuck sick at home with the flu. My school had a big event, 100 days to graduation. It was for the seniors, and I'd been looking forward to it since my freshman year. I was so upset that I wasn't able to attend. When I woke up from one of my flu-induced naps to check my phone, I saw the news about the Parkland school shooting. As you can imagine, it is a challenging, difficult morning. George is on the scene in Florida where another community is in disbelief, shocked by devastating violence, this time at that Florida high school on Valentine's Day. This image, one that has become all too familiar, students evacuating with their hands up. The suspect in that deadly shooting is now in custody. New images this morning showing him being My peers and I were ready to head out to college and life after high school, and that was something that wouldn't be happening for some of those students. Our thoughts on politics around gun violence were just beginning to be formed, and these issues were really prominent in my small private school in a conservative part of Georgia, and it was the first time that we felt like we could be politically involved in creating change with walkouts and protests. I even went to college with someone who survived that shooting. August 20th, 1986. I remember watching the news during dinner with my family. I was 12 years old. The broadcast talked about the U.S. Postal Service shooting in Edmond, Oklahoma and it potentially became the butt of jokes. Now, listeners of a certain age will remember this phrase, going postal. It was used in stand-up routines, sitcoms, and amongst the friends. Let me ask you something. What, what do you do for a living, Newman? I'm a United States postal worker. <laughs> Aren't those the guys that always go crazy and come back with a gun and shoot everybody? Sometimes. Did we think it was ephemeral and the issue of mass shooting and gun violence wouldn't grow? I don't know what we were thinking as a society. I was 12, but I do know that we were wrong. The Orlando nightclub massacre stuck with me for many reasons, and it was very sad because once again, it was an instance of a shooting that I felt like could have been prevented. I was just 15 years old, and that was a time where I was getting more educated on political issues outside of what I was being taught at school. And a major hate crime happened, and it was one of the first times I remember connecting the dots that this wasn't just a shooting, but a shooting motivated by hatred of a marginalized group. We do want to update you on the breaking news out of Orlando, the terror attack on a gay nightclub. Right now, at least 20 are dead, maybe more. The shooter also dead. Police say that he was well-prepared, he was organized. They do not believe that he was from the area. More than 40 have been taken to a local hospital. The reaction to the shooting from people I knew was jarring and frankly really scary. 
friends and family reacted in a way that I, as a queer person who hadn't told anyone how I identified, was really frightening to hear. Not only were these 49 people killed, but some of my friends and loved ones just looked the other way because of the sexuality of these people. A year earlier, the Charleston church shooting in South Carolina gave me nightmares. I was scared that someone would come into my church when my grandma and family members attended and do something similar. There's also the El Paso Walmart mass shooting in 2019. That really stands out to me. I was living in Albuquerque, which is only a four-hour drive from El Paso. Many of my friends were worried about the safety of their loved ones who lived in El Paso and in Albuquerque. And the violence there created an environment of fear in New Mexico. People worried that a copycat would do something similar. In a racist manifesto, he allegedly wrote, Crucius expressed support for the Christchurch New Zealand shooter and denounced the increasing Hispanic population in Texas. The Buffalo Supermarket Massacre. Rob Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. We heard, from, we heard from so many people, right? Families of the deceased, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, Texas Rangers, hunters, border patrol, and responsible gun owners who won't give up their Second Amendment right to bear arms. And you know what they all said? We want secure and safe schools, and we want gun laws that won't make it so easy for the bad guys to get these damn guns. The Boulder supermarket shootings. Another mass shooting in America. A deadly rampage in a grocery store in Boulder, Colorado, leaving 10 people dead, several yet to be identified, and including a veteran police officer, a father of seven. The Las Vegas Strip Massacre. It started at 10.08 p.m. The first reports of shots fired as singer Jason Aldean performed. Initially, there was confusion, many wondering if the sounds were part of the show. It's fireworks. It's fireworks. Stop. It's fireworks. But they quickly realized what was happening. We have an active shooter. We have an active shooter inside. The Covenant School, the Texas First Baptist Church massacre, the San Bernardino mass shooting. Yeah, we have a pattern now of, of mass shootings in this country that uh, has no parallel anywhere else in the world. The Virginia Tech massacre. Our nation is shocked and saddened by the news of the shootings at Virginia Tech today. Columbine High School, which happened six months before I was even born. Ten days after the Columbine killing, Charlton Heston came to Denver and held a large pro-gun rally. How could the NRA come here? To me, it's like they're rubbing their nose in it. This is what has happened since one or both of us have been alive. This is what we're facing as a community, city, nation, and human race. We have to do something about it so this history is not forgotten by future generations and to ensure that it's not repeated. For This is Nashville, I'm Khalil A. Colonna. And I'm Elizabeth Burton. We're taking a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with Dr. H. Stephen Moffick about America's psychological reaction to mass shootings and gun violence. And you can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. And this is Nashville. 
For over 40 years, Americans have lived with mass shootings. Schools across the country engage in active shooter drills to prepare students in case of an emergency. Patrons at grocery stores, nightclubs, and restaurants are juggling how to enjoy themselves while being on guard for a shooter that wants to commit violence against innocent people. To live in a constant state of worry is foreboding. How does this constant state of emergency affect our collective psychologically? Now, for decades, my next guest has studied gun violence and written about it. Dr. H. Stephen Moffick is an award-winning psychiatrist who has specialized in the cultural and ethical aspects of psychiatry. He's the author of the column Psychiatric Views on the Daily News for the Psychiatric Times. Dr. Moffick, thank you for being with us today. Welcome to This is Nashville. You're welcome, and thank you for having me, and thank you for the audience who is listening in. Honored to have you, sir. So I want to really begin by asking you, what moved you to begin to study gun violence and the psychological traumas it brings? Well, for me personally, I probably trace it back to when I moved to Milwaukee from Houston in 1989. Now, guns were sort of ever-present in Houston Rifles used to be on the top of cars and so forth. But as soon as I got to Milwaukee, um, I was asked to appear on a show to discuss whether the inner city of Milwaukee, of Black Americans, were psychotic. People were psychotic. And I said, no, um, maybe most are traumatized by the situations they're growing up in, but they're not psychotic. And part of the situation they're growing up in is gun violence and mass shootings. So that started my interest. Um, that takes us back, what, 35 years or so, close to the 40 years you just mentioned. And ever since then, because I work in community psychiatry, serving poor communities, I've paid attention to these mass shootings and written about it as best I could to try to understand it and suggest ways to reduce that sort of violence. Now, you know, in one of our shows this week, we spoke with firearms instructors who said that a good number of their students are coming in to train because they're concerned about personal safety. I know people personally who have purchased guns for that exact same reason. What do you think is the psychological catalyst for so many people rushing to buy guns for protection? Well, it's fear. Um, and the question is, is the fear appropriate, too much, or too little? And I would argue that we're dealing with a paradox or irony here, because the more people get guns and want guns, the, the more the risk is of gun violence occurring. So it's making everything worse that we collect more and more personal guns. So we think that makes it safer, but it actually puts us all at more risk. So we're dealing with a counterintuitive situation, if you will, which is, is very common in psychiatry, that what looks like the right thing to do really isn't. Mm. I, I'm interested in where the entertainment apparatus, media, and cowboy culture comes into play here. Yeah, well, you know, so you could take mass shootings back way beyond 40 years to the start of our country and eventually to the cowboys and their culture in settling the West. Um, I think the media just adds on to the fear and the risk. It doesn't cause it, maybe even more a reflection of what's going on in the country. Um, but it reflects, you know, our culture of, of violence, essentially, and our love of guns. And, you know, guns, the owners of guns, I think it makes them feel a little more 
powerful and secure. But again, that's really not the case. But the entertainment just adds on to, I think, the problem, psychologically speaking. You know, something that's interesting to me is that a large number of NRA members, they want some sort of form of gun safety laws, but the political narrative of the NRA and NRA members is quite different. How does that impact you? Yeah, I mean, I think the NRA is uh, a problem in this area. I mean, they've been masters of advertisement and posing guns as being necessary for security and so forth. And um, I think it's been very hard to counter that argument. Um, And I think there is a counter argument to that. But I think the NRA um, is, is part of the challenge to develop better gun safety. Now, gun safety is also a challenge in itself. It's like, how do we really make guns safer when we have so, so many of them? You know, other countries have dealt with this quite differently than than us. For instance, Canada and Australia are two of them. Now, you know, the NRA is quite a formidable and powerful lobby. But the organization and its former leader, Wayne LaPierre, are currently on trial in New York for fraud. Do you sense that the NRA could be losing its grip on the gun debate? Well, at least it's giving an opening, I think, to for opponents to the NRA to provide a counter argument. You know, what the leader did is a personal issue. It isn't necessarily viewed as a as a wrong viewpoint about guns per se. So, but I think his leadership has been very important to the NRA. Um, of course, lots of people think he's been a terrific leader and arguments are made for that, but I do think it leaves an opening for counter arguments um, that hasn't been there before. And maybe politically, it may influence NRA as a lobby and that may again be helpful for gun safety. Now, after mass shootings happen, the media's and public's attention, they capture the media's and public's attention. People, they, they, they really want to know why and how something so tragic can happen. Yet key points about our country's approach to mental health get put aside or sometimes ignored. What troubles you about that? Well, you know, like any disaster, people tend to rise to their best after a disaster. So we get concerned about storms that destroy communities like hurricanes, and we get concerned when there's mass shootings. That's human nature, which is a great part of human nature, but it's also human nature to sort of forget about the problem over time. It's like, you know, we have to get back to so-called normal and not be so upset and fearful about things that have been destructive. So we have to keep that in mind. It's easy to Uh, be concerned right after a disaster, but it's much harder to keep that going. And, you know, I think we're dealing with two different psychological problems now. One is the individual psychological problem of the mass shooter. And then there's our whole culture of of gun violence that's behind it. So I think that's what makes uh, sustained attention so difficult. You know, the mass shooter is taken out of circulation but the cultural issues behind mass shootings and gun violence are still there and still need attention. What what measures can the government take to kind of improve mental health access, let alone just increase that conversation within folks? 
Yes, that's part of the problem. You know, our mental health resources are inadequate in this country. They've always been inadequate. We need a national health plan um, because, you know, so many people need mental health uh, care but can't get it or don't know that they need it. And if you look at the history of most of the mass shooters, you can see where mental health intervention probably could have headed off what they did and whether that was missed by police or missed by loved ones and neighbors and friends varies. But you can look at those histories and see what could have been done to head that off. Now, as far as mass culture values, I think we have to look at our country's history and our value of violence and guns and reassess whether that's appropriate any longer, you know, because really our fascination and desire for guns are, is just making things worse. But I, so I think actually an educational approach is probably much more important than a political approach because I think the political approach is going to be so difficult and challenging. But the educational approach, like you're doing this whole week, is there for the taking. So the more of that, the better. I think psychiatrists have to get out of in the community and help educate about gun violence and why we're doing the opposite of what we need to do. So education is what I would actually emphasize. Now you talked about the international reaction to gun violence, and we look at United States and our reaction to gun violence, it's so different from other countries where gun ownership mm -hmm. is high. I'm thinking about Australia, which had the Port Arthur massacre, massacre in 1996. It killed 35 people. And last year in Serbia, two mass shootings in two days claimed the lives of claimed the lives of 17 people. Both countries went into swift action to create fundamental changes in their gun laws. But here in the United States, we continue to do nothing. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, I, I've been thinking about Australia a lot over time, and you've brought that up to me also. And I think Australia's success story is, is something to be admired. I don't know if we could repeat it. The central part of that, I think, was buying back the guns that were available and people readily turning them in. I don't know even if we offered to buy back guns in the United States, whether people would hand them in. I doubt it because not only are they part of mass shootings, but really part of inner city violence, um, violence, gun violence in any poor, vulnerable communities and, and domestic violence. But one difference with our country compared to Australia historically is that we had the Civil War. And of course, the Civil War was loaded with gun violence. And I think that carries forth the gun violence psychology that our country was formed in and was used in slavery. It was used against Native Americans. And the Civil War kept, in a way, or reflected the divisiveness we have had in the country really over most of our lifetimes, probably the times where we weren't so divided politically and ideologically was with the two world wars. But beyond that, we've been a pretty divisive country. I don't know. And I don't think that's been so true of Australia. Uh, Serbia is a unique case, of course, because it was formerly a part of Yugoslavia. And I know less about um, their country and why they did what they did. But I, I think this is part of who we were. It's part of our uh, collective uh, consciousness and psychology that needs to be, again, talked about and dealt with. Um, it's very powerful. 
You know, I understand that your son is a rabbi in Highland Park, Illinois, which had a mass shooting on Independence Day in 2022. What is he? Mm-hmm. T- what has he told you about the psychological reaction the community he serves had to the shooting? Well, it's both the fear, but also the impressive recovery um, with lots of resilience. You know, resilience helps people recover from any trauma. And what you need for resilience is a community support, a renewed vision, and 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 the wherewithal um, to adjust to more safety standards. So Highland Park um, has done that, and but. A unique aspect of what happened in Highland Park, um, and I think this happened in one of your mass shootings in Nashville, is that the father of the perpetrator helped someone, his son, get a gun, um, get a rifle, um, when he had had previous mental health problems. So it also brought up the whole issue, again, of having adequate treatment. And Highland Park maybe is somewhat unique because it was elite, um, wealthy community, but it could still happen there, obviously, because the perpetrator had this mental illness, which was untreated, and in a way supported his potential violence from his father. You know, and most of these mass shooters give away what they're going to do sooner or later, so it can be caught. Um, Thankfully, you know, clergy, both Jewish, uh, Muslim, and Christian have rallied to the cause and helped the community recover. Final question for you. How much of a factor do you think guns and safe gun laws will play in the upcoming general election in the fall? Um, that's, it's a good, hard question to answer, and I'm just starting to think and write about the upcoming election. Um, it depends on whether there's more mass shootings that get publicity over these next months, which I hope doesn't happen. Um, But if any of those occur and they grab the public's attention, then the election will will reflect that. Um, But if things are relatively quiet as far as mass shootings and the continued um, ignoring, the continuing neglect of the everyday violence is continued, then I don't think it's going to be much of a of a gigantic issue. So it really depends on on, on what happens over these months. And um, on the one hand, you'd like more attention and pay to that, but I think that would be at the cost of more mass shootings occurring. I want to thank Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, award-winning psychiatrist, who's the author of the column Psychiatric Views on the Daily News for the Psychiatric Times for being with us today. Dr. Moffick, again, thank you for coming on to the show and talking. I really appreciate it. And thank you. We got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll open up the phones to hear from you. We'll have State Senator Jeff Yarbrough and State Representative Caleb Hemmer here with us as well. Just call 615-760-2000 to get through. Or you can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Kulona, and this is Nashville. No one person or community is immune to gun violence. People in Nashville and Middle Tennessee know this. 
We're slowly recovering from last year's tragic mass shooting at the Covenant School while recovering from the Waffle House shooting in Antioch of 2018. Our state has some of the most relaxed gun laws in the nation. After the Covenant shooting, people from all over the state demanded that our lawmakers take action. After Governor Bill Lee declared a special session last summer, little action was done. Some might even call them token measures that do not really get to the root of mitigating and eliminating gun violence. At that time, and even now, many of you are making your voices heard. In the fall, we'll have a general election, the results of which could bring great change to our state and nation's gun laws or more of the same. So we want to hear from you to learn how you feel about it. We've opened up the phone lines, so call us at 615-760-2000. That's 615-760-2000 to get through. And let us know what's on your mind when it comes to guns and gun safety. Joining me now are two state lawmakers who have been working to get some tougher laws on the books. Caleb Hemmer is the state house representative for Nashville's District 59, and Jeff Yarbrough is the state senator from District 21. I'd like to welcome them both to the show. Representative Hemmer, Senator Yarbrough, thank you both for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Really appreciate this. Senator Yarbrough, news broke out this week that Tennessee felons must get their guns back before regaining the right to vote. On Twitter, you said, quote, this is almost too dumb to be true, end quote. Why do you feel that way? Well, I think the the fact that we've now elevated gun ownership to being a, a citizenship right of equal, if not greater, importance than voting just demonstrates a, a, a skewed perspective that is uh, that has taken hold inside the you know some members of the general assembly and and puts us in a place where it is harder and harder to simply do things that make common sense i mean not to mention it just erects a barrier to people being able to vote who otherwise should be able to hmm. i mean it, like i think most people would say like when someone uh, you know gets out of prison tries to rejoin society we're more we're less personally threatened by their participating in an election than in them, you know, carrying a firearm with them all at all times. Right. So, I mean, I think, you know, a little bit of common sense would go a long way here. Representative Hemmer, what's your opinion of that law? Yeah, that's uh, well, it's it's really a ruling at this point uh, from the from the uh, Secretary of State's office, and so I think it's very dis- misguided um, to to Senator Yarbrough's point. I mean, the fact that. Uh, People aren't able to get, and they paid their dues, come back to society, and they're not able to 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 do the common things that you want to do as a citizen and vote because of some arbitrary rule that is, you know, is not <laughs> really uh, in, in any form of common sense. It's it's really troubling. And last year, you both sponsored bills that would hold gun owners accountable if their gun were stolen from their vehicle. Representative Hemmer, how much of a concern should Tennesseans have about guns being stolen from cars and trucks? Uh, should be very, very concerned. Unfortunately, uh, Tennessee is number one in the country, according to the latest FBI stats, of guns being stolen out of cars. Um, this is not something we want to be number one for. Uh, Memphis is the number one city. Chattanooga is number two. Um Nashville is 14 and Jackson is 15. Round that out makes us the number one in the whole state. Um, and so here in Nashville alone, I think we've had 1,200 guns uh, stolen uh, last year on pace, uh, record record pace, unfortunately. Um, and this is all because of the loosening of gun laws that's happened uh, nearly a decade ago through the guns and trunks law, uh, what has now made it 
essentially, uh, you know, legal to have your gun in the car. It's actually, excuse me, it's actually illegal, but there's no penalty. Um, and so mm-hmm. it's just created this culture that people can leave their guns willy-nilly in their cars. And um, and unfortunately, uh, people are finding out that, you know, it can be stolen and used in crimes. Stolen and used in crimes and creates it. Where Senator Yarbrough. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of our colleagues on the other side of the aisle will say we shouldn't change the laws because the laws don't affect behavior. And, and, the, mm-hmm. and the, like the, they won't do anything. Uh, this is a clear example of where the legislature took an action, made change the law in Tennessee, and it's had a profound effect. Uh, it's not just that there's a large number of, of firearms that are now stolen. After the passage of this law, the you know uh, gun thefts from vehicles increased by 100 percent, doubled, then doubled again, wow. then doubled again. I mean, we're seeing multi, you know 400 percent increases over a decade following the passage of a law. I mean, this was a public policy choice to put illegal guns into the community effectively. I mean, I told, I joked with, uh, I mean, somewhat morosely with Representative Hammer once, if we actually just allocated a million dollars every year to purchase new firearms for, for criminals, we would be less effective at getting firearms into the hands of criminals than this law has mm. been. It, it, it's hard to say uh, that you are want to fight and prevent crime, but you leave a law like this on the books. That's right. And it makes it harder to when there's so many cheap illegal guns, it makes it harder for any of your gun laws to work. All right. We're going to go to the phones. We got a call from Jason from Nashville. He's a gun violence survivor who has a question for the representatives. Jason, thanks for calling. What's your question for the representatives? Yeah, so I just want to say, uh, Representative Hammer, thank you so much for your storage bill that you're trying to get through. And, and uh, Sir Yarbrough, thank you so much for the work that you've done. I uh, just want to thank both of you guys so much. I'd also like to add that we're now leading the nation in road rage murders, which I think kind of dovetails with the guns and cars piece, too. And, of course, that's what affected me when my kid brother was killed in 2016 in an unsolved murder. And and I, I guess really quickly, I was I had some hope when the Covenant shooting happened for terrible reasons that maybe that this would add more focus on it. But it seems like, based on some of the testimony I've seen in committees this week, that the, that a, the legislature is being incredibly dismissive of those victims. I guess it's not important to them anymore since we're you know a year out, which is heartbreaking to me. And I just wanted to see if you guys thought there would be any sort of any chance of anything good coming through out of this session instead of more terrible things. Thank you, Jason. Uh, you know, Jason, I, I appreciate you sharing your story and the expression of, of wanting there to be hope. I mean, we're Democrats in the Tennessee General Assembly. We have to have hope every day to walk in and try to appeal to the better uh, the better nature of our colleagues to try to do something about very real tragedies that are happening every day in a state. And obviously there are downsides and way too much dismissiveness, but I do think that we will, I mean, I think there will be some minor steps that that could get taken. Uh, I mean, I think that you've seen some response to the most recent tragedy at the, at, uh, with the student at Belmont to lead to some modifications of of firearms laws in Tennessee. 
I think that we are still building a long-term coalition and playing a long game here in Tennessee, though. Yeah, thank you, Jason, for uh, for your comments, and I could hear the concern and, and caring of your voice, and it's definitely something we're not giving up on. Uh, we think this is a problem worth solving, worth spending time on. Um, I think that's kind of why one of the things we are working so hard on the secure storage, it actually is one of the few bipartisan things. We have Republican co-sponsors. We have people that care about this across the, the state and different uh, communities. Um, and so it's it's something that we know we should be focusing on, and then we think that we can fix. Jason, really appreciate your call. I do have a question for you both. You you both work, you know, you're state legislators, supermajority of Republicans, but I know that you, people sometimes, politicians, I'm not trying to paint you all with a mask, the same brush, let's say, sometimes you they act one way on the floor of the chambers. Then privately, they act a different way. Have you all had private conversations with some of your Republican colleagues where they've expressed deep concern about this, but they feel politically trapped from saying or actually taking any actionable steps to it within legislation? Absolutely. I, mean, I think there are lots of members who will tell you that they are appalled by the violence they see. And, you know, I mean, I, like I would never they would never want to be quoted as saying so. But like, I think they don't take action because they are worried that a small but very loud minority of their uh, primary voters will revolt against them for doing anything for doing taking actions that involve too much concern or common sense here. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think it's why it's been really interesting to watch uh, the, the Covenant parents, the groups have formed like Voices for Tennessee, come to the Capitol, share their stories, work on, you know, new new strategies and 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 try to build common, you know, common sense coalitions around these policies that people support. You know, it's been really interesting. We've had around five statewide polls uh, over the past year. Um, and it's very clear, uh, to Jeff's point about a, a vocal minority, um, I mean, most of these measures, uh, extreme risk protections, uh, secure storage, uh, you know, not wanting to sell AR-15s, these are policies that are in the, you know, 60, 70 percent range from across parties across Tennessee. And so that, that really says something. We have a phone call from Joe in Nashville. He wants to talk about the to share something about the rights of unarm the unarmed in our state. Joe, thanks for being with us. What's your comment, my friend? Uh, I, I think this is a discussion that somehow gets lost, that before the Second Amendment, we had the Bill of Rights, which was focused on the rights of the unarmed for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We know the simple equation that more guns equals more gun violence. So my neighbor's gun puts their own life more at risk, but more importantly for me, they put my life at risk. I choose not to have to carry a firearm into the supermarket, into a movie theater, into a church. And I think that's it's an important argument, and it needs to be said over and over again. We came before the Second Amendment, and that's all I wanted to say, so thank you. Thank you so much, Joe. Uh, gentlemen, do you have a, uh, how does that resonate with you what Joe shared with us well, I, I mean I think Joe is right on target in a sense if you'll pardon the pun um, right on target in the sense that we should have a safe society where you're not worried about catching a stray bullet just because you're walking down the street or driving your car uh, and when you create a, a, a situation where guns are more plentiful and just in 
common everyday usage, you're creating more risk for people. And that's what we're seeing. I mean, you know, we have seen chil children as victims of homicides increase, be tripled over the last decade. And I think the callous disregard that we're seeing to not have any response to those type of, of incidents is probably the, the the clearest indication of the dysfunction of American politics that there is right now. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking this hour about guns and gun safety with Representative Caleb Hemmer and Senator Jeff Yarbrough. You can join the conversation by calling 615-760-2000. That's 615-760-2000. We have a call from Lisa Matthews in Nashville. Lisa, thanks for being with us. What's your comment? Hi, um, I am an anesthesiologist in a local Nashville hospital. Thank you for taking my call. And I have had the unfortunate, unfortunate, you know, place of being taking care of multiple gun violence victims. My question to you, I, you know, some of these questions have already been answered by your guest today, Khalil. Um, but I, I just feel like, you know, we are not making any progress. Why does Tennessee place in the bottom of the list of all the states when it comes to gun safety? And my second question is, why does any civilian need an AR-15 that can inflict so much damage in such a short period of time? Mm. Thank you for that, Lisa. Uh, yeah, thank you, thank you for your question, Lisa. I mean, to, to your point, um, you know, that there's a great body of evidence and there's great resources that, that are out there that you see uh, RAND, for example, a, a policy uh, think tank that has put out evidence-based strategies uh, that, you know, they can go out and show if you execute XYZ policy and loosen or strengthen, it, it'll affect, you know, your your criminal statistics or, you know, health statistics one way or another. Um, so they're much like the the secure storage guns and trunks laws affected it toward the negative here. Uh, one of the uh, comments I've been saying when when kind of showing the the statistics of the guns being stolen uh, uh, here in Nashville, you know, you want your 401k to look like that, but you don't want your crime stats. Um, and so there, there really is a clear, you know, this isn't this isn't some mystery. We know what works. We know there's evidence behind that. And if we want to really tackle this problem and be serious about gun violence in our community, we know we can adopt some of these policies that we're talking about here today. To Lisa's point, what makes Tennessee so unusual as far as, you know, it's the bottom of the list on all of these horrific stats for gun violence and gun theft and, and road rage as well. Yet, I mean, I've, I've lived here coming on three years. And Tennesseans have a lot of pride in the state of Tennessee. But this is not something to be proud about. No. Yet nothing is happening and changing. What, what, what is it about the culture of the state that's leading us here? Well, I mean, look, there's no question but that uh, Representative Hemmer's right that gun violence in states follows public policy in states. Now, that probably does reflect the, the political culture, but we should be clear that it's a political culture problem. And I think that we have somehow the worst tragedy of the NRA is that they've conditioned supporters to see these tragic events and not respond as human beings to a human situation and the, you know, ungodly loss of life, but as, you know, team members who have a prearranged script mm. to offer thoughts and prayers urge people not to politicize it too quickly, 
to punt it to later and then to oppose any real action. And to your point, I could imagine if something like the Sandy Hook massacre of 2014 happened in 1984, I feel like we wouldn't be in this situation right now. Absolutely not. So. All right, let's go to another call. We've got Marie from Nashville. Hey, Marie, thanks for being with us. What's your comment? So it was stated earlier that several surveys have been taken by our government and that I think they said three. And each one had responses that were in, in the 70% range that they wanted to do away with the AR-15 and that everybody expects to have safety in the streets of Nashville and in their homes. How many surveys does it take before some action is actually taken to do away with the AR-15? I'll, thank you for your, your uh, comment. I think the, the first survey that really matters is Election Day and researching your uh, your candidates uh, and then also talking to your friends that live in uh, these other communities and making sure your candidates uh, that you support do support gun uh, safety measures. I mean, that's that's the first thing that matters. Um, and to your point, uh, just one quick clarification. There were actually private surveys. Tennessean did one. Vanderbilt's done a few. Um, that, so there weren't necessarily government surveys, but just public opinion polling surveys. And I, I'll just add to that that, that, I mean, this is a perfect example of why good public policy really depends upon having a strong democracy. We have created numerous systems to make it harder for people to vote. You mentioned one earlier where we've, you know, said anyone who has a gun, you know, has a felony conviction and can't access gun rights mm -hmm. can't vote. Um, we've done all sorts of things to put barriers up to people voting and to and barriers to make sure that votes are less impactful than they might otherwise be through gerrymandering. And those things stand in the way of your legislature actually representing the real voters of the state. Instead, they're representing the narrow, loud voices that vote in their primaries. This is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake-Alona. We have a few minutes left, but we still can get a phone call in. So call us at 615-760-2000 at 615-760-2000. Legislative session is on. You both are working hard. What legislation are you proposing this year for this session? Thank you. Uh, well, we have, uh, we're actually continuing our fight last year. Uh, uh, we both sponsored a secure storage bill um, that will essentially just put some common sense penalties in, in place for people that leave their guns unsecured in their vehicles uh, and uh, or don't uh, report a theft of that. Um, so that would just make it where uh, a person will have to take a court order training uh, class. Additionally, we put forth uh, another measure this year where we will uh, allow large cities, uh, essentially the top 10 cities in the state that, that wants to create their own uh, common sense, uh, you know, gun safety proposals. Um, so those are the two main things that we're looking toward to this year. Uh, so working on those things with, with Representative Hammer, uh, I also, uh, speaking to Jason's call earlier, while I'm introducing legislation to to punish especially road rage incidents with, that are mm -hmm. accomplished with a firearm, as well as working with Representative Love to create a voluntary system where somebody can put themselves onto a do not sell list so that they can at least self-report a mental health incident that would, that would when they're in a a good frame of mind so that they don't, uh, so that they're not sold a weapon. All right. We have a call coming in from Smith. Smith, thanks for joining us. What's your comment? Hey, I was just listening to y'all talk about the gun laws, and I was wondering why Tennessee is so adamant about keeping 
convicted felons from, you know, their right to carry arms because I'm a convicted felon, nonviolent, and it was over 20 years ago. I worked the same job, haven't got into any trouble since then, and I'm still unable to, like, have my right to carry back. And the state of Nashville and their gun violence is crazy, and I believe that we should be able to protect ourselves given our past mistakes. Thank you very much, Smith, for that. So Smith is saying that he that he was a convicted felon, nonviolent. He's out. He served his time. Why can't he have rights to own a gun? He 100% should be able to vote in Tennessee and participate, participate in the community. One of the oldest principles we have is no taxation without representation. He's paying taxes but can't participate yeah. in government. I actually we, sponsored the legislation to allow him to get his rights back along with Senator Oliver last year, and it didn't make it out of committee. Okay, we got one call left. I got it just about a minute. We've got Barbara. Barbara, thanks for being hello. with us. Uh, hello. Um, yes, I had one quick comment. Uh, everyone asks, what is it going to take? to get this change? What is it going to take to get these laws changed? In my mind, the only way this is going to change is to vote the Republicans out of office who keep voting against common sense gun legislation and replace them with people that will. They are a brick wall that is blocking everything. And no amount of bloodshed will change, will shift them. So the solution is to run for office and vote. Thank you so much for that, Barbara. You know, in my profile conversation with Melissa Alexander, a Covenant mom, she's a Republican. I asked her, from this experience, did she consider running? She said she's thinking about it. She considered she hasn't made a decision, but she's thinking about it. What will it take for people who are listening to throw their hats in the ring? Uh, now, I would say, you know, it's also important people don't think about voting on Election Day. They need to think about it voting twice a year because there's the primaries are just as important in, as the general. We need more people running, more people voting, and more people committed to long-term political accountability for the people who are letting Tennesseans down and making their children live in an unsafe world. I want to thank my guests for coming on to the show today. Representative Caleb Hemmer of Nashville's District 59 and State Senator Jeff Yarbrough from Nashville's District 21. Thank you both, gentlemen, for being with us. And thanks, everybody, to calling. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Elizabeth Burton and yours truly. It was directed by our senior producer, Tasha A. of Limley. Our board operator is Michael Pollard. Live tweeting was handled by Elizabeth Burton. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekulona. We'll see you on Monday, everybody. And be good to each other.